Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Today's a big day for uh, the big banks and reporting earnings. We had a kind of a mixed bag. JP Morgan and Citi outperformed uh, expectations. Wells Fargo came in a little bit worse than expected. That stock down about 4% today. Let's dive into some of those numbers. Ken Leone, Director of Equity Research at CFRA Research, uh, joins us on the phone from New York. Ken, thanks so much for joining us. Give us your takeaways here from um, the first batch of earnings coming from the big money center banks. The consumer is really driving banking, and those with strong, large franchises, such as J.P. Morgan or even Bank of America tomorrow, are, are really growing those business, both in terms of loans and also credit card business. Um, Citi um, had strong results, not as strong as J.P. Morgan, but you know Wells Fargo is still disappointing. Uh, today, we uh, reiterated our buy on J.P. Morgan and our sell on Wells Fargo uh, with a new CEO. It's going to be a long time before we see the transformation. They have 12 different federal regulatory examinations, including the asset freeze from the Federal Reserve. Uh, that means that their loan growth was only up 1%. Uh, we have a flat rate environment. Banks typically have half their revenue coming from net interest income. So the other businesses are really important. But if you have an asset freeze like Wells Fargo, uh, the non-net interest income was down 16%, 16% for the fourth quarter. Yeah. So we're staying with our sell on Wells Fargo. Ken, I'm, try I'm struggling to understand. You say the consumer is really driving everything. Jamie Dimon of J.P. Morgan saying the same thing. And yet their consumer lending book, actually, uh, their, their new loans underwritten actually declined. Can you square that? Yeah, I can. And what's driving um, the consumer, it, 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 it's actually, it also includes small business loans. And uh, they're expanding into 20 new markets. Um, small business loans are driven not by e-commerce, but by face-to-face. -face. And for the U.S. economy, that's really what's driving job growth and businesses. Um, in terms of uh, the consumer loans, uh, you know, being somewhat flat, you know, you had strong comps a year ago, but for all of 2019, you know, it was up strongly. Ken, I'm looking at the uh, J.P. Morgan and the Citi results. Both had really strong uh, FIC trading, fixed income credit commodities uh, trading results. Is that just a, a byproduct of easy comps from a week fourth quarter last year or was the market that much better here in this fourth quarter? Yeah, th thanks for the question. And it's easy comps year over year. The sequential from third to fourth quarter uh, was kind of flatter up 2%. Uh, this is why our investment plan with the, with the banks is go for the J.P. Morgans or Bank of America with large banking. We get Goldman tomorrow. They're going to have strong also trading results and thick. It's not going to happen for each of the quarter's in 2020. So it's, it's kind of because of the weak fourth quarter of 2018, not the strength of the fourth quarter of 2019. Ken, it's interesting. A lot of people were saying, what is the upside of the financial sector? And that's why we've seen the underperformance through the rally of the past uh, number of years. Seems like there still is a lot of upside if you look at the fourth quarter. Uh, do you think that it is anachronistic or, or just sort of, uh, you know, a, a one-time deal uh, that we got a quarter like the one that we got in the fourth quarter with easy comps? 
with a rally and risk assets, et cetera, et cetera, and not necessarily something that can be sustained. So um, talking about stocks, the diversified bank stocks, the large ones, were up over 35%. Most of that came in the fourth quarter last year. We look ahead to this year, we see some separation of the large banks. So looking at the fundamentals matters. Uh, So long as we have a strong U.S. economy, job growth, that's going to drive the consumer. Uh, When we look at is there a distressed industry where it's alarming, possibly in energy, but right now, you know, the non-performing loans for the large banks is very small. Um, Again, then you look global, uh, certainly Citi has more exposure uh, with more revenue coming from outside the U.S., uh, from Latin America and Asia. Uh, We prefer to stay uh, with the U.S. So um, I think for an investor, the important point is the stock's are always cheap to the S&P 500. They're trading at about 11 or 12 times earnings. The S&P is up, you know, mid 20 times earnings. And I think there's interest to look at these stocks because on a relative valuation, they appear to be attractive. So Ken, the big money center banks, investment banks have had a a good run over the trailing uh, 12 months. How about some of the regional banks? Is that a place where maybe investors can find some value? Um, there is value, but regional banks have a very different profile. Uh, they don't have capital markets except for maybe a U.S. bank. Um, we do like U.S. bank, uh, but they also have a very a much higher percentage of commercial loans to total net revenue. Commercial loans also includes uh, real estate, and uh, for for the regional banks, um, you know, when you look at where there could be risk would be in overdevelopment of the office real estate market. We don't see it yet, but when you got 30 to 40% of your total net revenues coming from real estate out of your total commercial loans, you know, that's uh, a higher risk exposure than you're going to see with the money center banks. Ken, one thing that I thought was interesting with Citi's earnings in particular was that their expenses went up uh, and it had to do with their personnel costs as well as uh, their technology investments. Do you view this as a good sign or a bad sign? If you're not investing with technology, then you're going to be a you're going to be a loser out over the next few years. And it's a question of where they're putting it. Citi uh, has a very concentrated business in the U.S. You know, they're only in a handful of states. So this is going uh, to their networks on the consumer side in Mexico, uh, Brazil, and also Asia. Uh, They also are investing in their global corporate network as well. Um, The new hires, I think, they're trying to regain some share in the equity underwriting business, so it's more bankers. Nobody wants to be in trading, and I think that's a theme you're going to see all week. Even though you saw that easy comps on the thick trading um, and equity trading, with regulated capital, no one really wants to be in trading. They want to move into more stable, recurring businesses, whether it's credit card or wealth or asset management. Ken Leone, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate your comments on the banks. Ken Leone, Director of Equity Research at CFRA, uh, joining us on the phone from New York.
Let's get straight to uh, a column that I thought was really interesting yeah. uh, from Bloomberg Opinion. And uh, joining us now is Mark Gilbert, who is uh, who wrote the column. And it was about BlackRock and a recent push that they have made to change their investing criteria to account for climate change. What was sort of the nuts and bolts of this change, Mark? Well, Larry Fink, his annual letter to chief executives um, published today, basically said there's a fundamental reshaping of, of the financial world going on as, as the climate crisis becomes front and centre. Um, so BlackRock says it's going to put environmental, social and governance issues and sustainability at the centre of its investment approach. Um, in practice, that means basically doubling the number of ESG um, exchange trader funds it offers. It's planning to increase the amount it allocates to so- socially responsible investing at basically tenfold in the coming decade. Um, But in practical terms, because BlackRock, which manages $7 trillion, is the world's biggest fund manager, because so much of it is wrapped up in basically index tracking products, in practical terms, a lot of that investment assets is not available to basically participate in this push against climate change. So, Mark, we've been hearing more and more and more about ESG investing, uh, social investing, sustainable investing. But boy, when Larry Fink and BlackRock put their name behind it, it really amps up the conversation. What's the trend been in ESG investing? It's massive. I mean, in the past two years, my inbox, my my email inbox is just inundated with um, initiatives, with a a new, a growing awareness that, that, look, it's not climate change, it's a climate crisis. Um, and that the, the fund managers, because they're the main allocators of capital in the world, they're at the forefront um, of the fight to, to persuade companies and to force boards to pay more attention to their greenhouse emissions and to basically save the planet. Well, understood. The question here is, do the ESG strategies effectively uh, put into place some kinds of measures to ameliorate the situation, or is it sort of uh, cover up? Not not cover up. That makes it sound illicit. But it's you know something where it's basically it looks good. It's putting lipstick on a pig. I mean, is, is there an element of that? There's an element of greenwashing. Sure, um, ESG is a key factor for millennials, for example, for the younger class of investors, um, who every fund manager wants to get on board early in their saving career um, and basically lock them in for life. So there's an element of greenwashing, but there's also a serious undercurrent to this, which has grown over the past couple of years, which is that, look, one of the things Larry Fink says in his letter is, if you don't know what the future is going to be for, let's say, flood insurance, then how can you issue 30-year mortgages? If you don't know what the climate costs are going to be for cities, then how can you lend them money through the municipal bond market? So clearly the climate change is, is affecting the world of finance in a fundamental way, um, and that is forcing investment um, funds to, to pay attention in a way that they haven't done before. So yes, there's an element of greenwashing. Yes, there's an element of, of, of me too, of being seen to be doing the right thing. But I think underpinning this is, is a genuine fundamental change in thinking about what is needed to save the planet. Because let's face it, there's no point having returns of seven, eight, nine percent if there's no planet to enjoy them in. <laughs> Marks, is there any sense you mentioned returns? Do we have any data yet to show whether ESG investing whether I sacrifice performance to amp up my ESG factor? 
I can show you returns that prove that it's fantastic for your returns, and I can show you studies that show it's absolutely detrimental for your returns. Um, the jury's still out on that. One thing, Cliff, Cliff Asnes of, of AQR, he argues that if you're not losing returns, then you're not really doing the job of, of socially responsible investing because you want the companies you punish to pay more for their capital. That, in turn, would lead to higher returns for those willing to lend to them. And so you should be willing to sacrifice those returns if, in fact, you want to force those companies to do more in terms of their greenhouse gas emissions. And, and I, 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 have some, I have a lot of sympathy for that view. There's another issue here, which is that, OK, the millennials, they say they want ESG. Are they willing to pay more for it? You know, the, 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 the rise of exchange-traded funds has pushed fees down all across the industry. But if you want those exchange-traded funds to be actively engaging with boards, that costs money and it costs time. And that means that the low fees that have been enjoyed in ETF so far probably aren't sustainable if you want that those trillions of dollars of capital that are in index tracking funds to be available to engage with boards Wait, on this hold issue. Hold on a second. Are you saying that basically BlackRock doesn't have enough uh, doesn't have enough resources to be active on the boards of some of these companies to affect uh, greener changes? Without higher, without higher fees? Two-thirds of that $7 trillion of assets are in index-tracking products. And that, the, the, the drive, to, the, the, you know, the doubling we've seen in ETFs to seven, to, 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 seven, to well, almost $6 trillion in the past five years has been driven mostly by lower fees. And if you're charging lower fees for an index-tracking product, then you can't allocate the staff on that asset to go and engage with the boards. It, it, it's simple maths. So, Mark, what I noticed during my career is that ESG investing really seemed to begin or grow or take shape in Europe and then move to the U.S. Why did that happen? Europe's still ahead on this issue. The, the European Union is going to come up later this year with a, what it calls a taxonomy, a, a set of criteria which is designed to avoid the greenwashing issue. It's designed to set standards for what counts as an ESG funds. It's designed to set standards for what counts as a green bond. Um, Europe has just been, been ahead of this game. I, I'm, I'm not really sure why. Culturally, I guess, we're just that much more in tune with the environment. <laughs> Mark Gilbert, thanks so much for joining us. Mark, Thank you. Uh, <laughs> Mark Gilbert is a Bloomberg View columnist joining us uh, from London. You can read more of Mark's work, Bloomberg Opinion work, and that of other Bloomberg Opinion writers on the terminal by typing in O-P-I-N-Go or on the web, Bloomberg.com slash opinion. They have just some great work. Overnight, or uh, yesterday afternoon, the U.S. said that it was no longer considering China a currency manipulator. Why it ever labeled China that in the first place still remains unclear. Why it decided to strip it uh, of that label is much more clear as we head into the final stages of the phase one negotiations between the U.S. and China. Joining us now, Damian Sassauer, chief uh, markets correspondent having to do with emerging markets for Bloomberg Intelligence here, uh, particularly the debt side of things. Things. Can you make sense of what, what of this in any way, shape, or form? Well, I think the way we have to begin is because I mean, I mean look, there's three criteria that the United States government uh, mandates for some for a country to be deemed a, a currency manipulator. One, it needs to have a trade surplus with the U.S. that's greater than 20 billion U.S. dollars. 
China did satisfy that criteria. The other two, that being a current account surplus um, in excess of 2% of GDP and persistent one-sided FX intervention, um, really didn't materialize. And so, yeah, you're absolutely right. It was a little bit of a, a mystery as to how the U.S. actually labeled them in the first place, but it's not a really big mystery because they labeled them literally the day after the yuan broke above seven. <laughs> so it was more political than anything. And I think the Trump administration is really using this designation as a way to kind of force the hand of other countries. All right. So does what's the practical implication of the U.S. labeling China a manipulator and then, I guess, removing that classification? <laughs> Was there any practical in the global trade scheme of things? Uh, Paul, none whatsoever. I mean, the only uh, thing being labeled a currency manipulated by the U.S. means you can't be involved in gro- government procurement contracts, right? Which China was never involved with anyway. So okay. the impact on China is 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 not so much. I mean, what's interesting though is not so much who is labeled a currency manipulator or not on the list this this round, uh, like Thailand. Thailand was not on the, I mean, they have been actively intervening in their currency to protect the bot from appreciating for the better part of the last year, yet they were not on this list. Others who were, Switzerland, the Netherlands, Germany, the um, the qualitative statement Germany's that accompanied a currency manipulator. Well, it was more about uh, um, about them saying that they need to stimulate uh, a fiscal stimulus. There's not enough fiscal stimulus relative to what okay. they should be stimulating. Um, with regard to Singapore, their savings rate is too high, so they're labeled a currency manipulator. There's all sorts of different, you know, kind of uh, a qualitative assessments around these countries. And so far as the United States is concerned, with regard to China, the interesting thing here is there's a need for greater transparency between China's policy banks and their FX activities, which obviously makes sense. And, it, and, and Lisa and I were just talking a little bit earlier about the massive CNY option volumes that have been going through over the better part of the last two days. We saw 13 billion renminbi options trade yesterday. You were That's really m- discussing this with Lisa? Yeah. We, wow, we, we, of course. Are you, are you surprised in any way, shape, or form? <laughs> no, of course I mean, like, not. Like, let's be real honest. That's true to form. <laughs> well, um, we, we, yeah. <laughs> I want to shift gears though a little bit away from the options trading, which is interesting uh, in light of the fact that there wasn't a lot of actual movement uh, in the actual price action. I am wondering about some of the numbers and the data that we got uh, this week about trade and just where it's been rerouted uh, in China and some of the potential consequences to the economy uh, of the ongoing trade skirmish. I think it's interesting that they've actually offset the entirety of any impact uh, with the U.S. Can you talk a little about that? Yeah, so you trade with the U.S. I mean, look, first of all, China's announced a trade balance overnight expanded to about $47 billion U.S. Exports and imports both surprised to the upside. Trade with the U.S., however, down 11% for the full year 2019. It was the EU and the ASEAN, the Southeast Asian bloc, that picked up the slack there. So, you know, it's it's really, as you say, it's about um, a rejiggering of trading uh, within the Asian bloc, right? And so if, you know, trade with the U.S. is indeed going to, you know, decline or, or remain at lower levels than they have been in the past, it makes perfect sense that you would see trade with Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand, and so forth go up simply because those are the countries that the U.S. is probably going to do more business with. So they're going to serve as a bit of a conduit into China, if you follow me. So yeah, look, I mean, I think I think the trade data was interesting. I think it was, um, it was good, but we have total social financing data coming out of China overnight. And that is going to be, for me, far more important because that's if we don't see long-term corporate lending pick up in China, I think you're going to see a lot more PBOC stimulus throughout the better part of this year, and that might not necessarily be a, a bad thing. It would obviously be good for foreign holders of China government bonds, but I can't see uh, that being necessarily a really good thing for a lot of uh, of local equities in China. So we are presumably getting a 
phase one trade deal signed tomorrow. We've not seen anything on paper, so we're, as Michael McKee said, he's not even going to think about it until he sees it on paper. Although we may never. We may never. I, no, you have to release something, don't you? Yeah, they <laughs> sign, like we don't never know. That's, that's Leo Head came all this way, right? <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, do the emerging markets care about this, or is this kind of much to do about nothing? You know, I mean, I think they would care a lot if nothing got done. But right okay. now, it seems fully priced to me, Paul. And you know what I'm really more focused on? I'm really more focused on um, the EU. And, you know, um, we have Mr. Hogan, you know, the EU uh, trade commissioner in the United States today meeting with Lighthizer. And, you know, this is about autos. This is about big ticket sales. This is about durables. And so for me, I'm interested to see how that goes, because if indeed China is not going to be Trump's whipping boy for the better part of, you know, this election year and his focus shifts to the European region, uh, that would be obviously interesting. And the impact on a lot of the euro denominated emerging market countries in my universe, Poland, Hungary, Czech, obviously that wouldn't be a good thing for many of those countries. Just real quick here, a lot of people are saying that the Chinese consumer is showing signs of strength again, or at least uh, stabilization. Just real quick, buying that? <laughs> you know, I, I mean, we've talked a lot about, and I, you know, I came here prepared to talk about China defaults with you. And, you know, it's really interesting to me, forget about the consumer, because for me, Dave, you know, you're the best. oh, come on. I mean, I did it just for you. But okay. I mean, I mean, Qinghai Provincial, Taewoo, Dandong Port. I mean, I've been following some of this very closely. Yeah. I actually met the former chairman, uh, Wang Weiling of Dandong Port back in the days. Of course it's the biggest port in northeastern China, kind of by North Korea, and my goodness, the forceful ruling that came out of Lianeling province, I'm sorry if I mispronounced uh, uh, that, well, it was such a bad uh, ruling for creditors and investors in that issue. I mean, if we see more of that, this is going to be, uh, it's, it's basically going to deter a lot of offshore investors from participating in their local credit markets, which is not good for the China consumer. <laughs> Damien, I, I've got to say, we have to have a, a two-hour special. Yes, we do. <laughs> on, on this. Yes, I'm sure he's got a podcast somewhere we can probably listen in on. Damien Sassauer, Chief Emerging Markets Credit Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, giving us his thoughts on we're getting some trade discussions and trade manip uh, currency manipulator discussions between the U.S. and China. But of course, tomorrow, signing the phase one deal between the U.S. and China, it's got to be good for markets. Well, the gig economy has really been a, a new development over the last 10 or 15 years. 48% of millennial workers say they earn extra income on the side, according to a new bankrate.com survey. The explosion in opportunities has drawn more people across different generations into side hustles. 39% of Gen Xers and 28% of baby boomers said they've engaged in the gig, gig economy. It's not just Uber and Lyft. It's also impacting businesses such as jewelry and accessories. Jessica Heron is a founder and chief executive officer of Stella and Dot based in San Francisco, but joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So Jessica, thanks so much for being with us. Tell us a little bit about Stella and Dot. What is the company? What do you guys do? Well, thanks for having me. Stellan Dodd is a mission-driven company created to help women earn flexible income in a modern way. We do that by paying commissions for when people share our products across our three brands in fashion, skincare, and accessories. And we are now modernizing to make that even more digital than ever before. So basically, if somebody shares something on social media and it gets sold or it gets you know some kind of... Uh, 
gain in popularity, they get a commission? They do if people shop their link, but we also power pop-ups with our point of sale system. So they have one powerful platform where they can share both in person and online in order to pay a real bill. They need to be able to generate enough sales. So now we have a way for them to do that across our brands and categories and whether they want to sell in person or online, adding real value to the customer. How big is the commission? Up to 40%, and it's paid weekly, which is dramatically different than what you might do in typical uh, affiliate marketing, where you get a very small percent 30 days later. All right, so how many people, give us a sense of your company, how many ambassadors do you have, and give us a sense of kind of the growth of, the, of your company. Well, we're uh, over $100 million in revenue, and we have over 30,000 oh. uh, independent ambassadors that share our product largely part-time. So they do this on top of another full-time job or part-time job, and it's a way to get an extra $100, $1,000 a month, even though we have people who earn full-time income and do it much more. Really, people look at this as a way to augment uh, the, the fun in their life and money in their life. I'm, I mean, this is so interesting to me on many levels. Number one, uh, how this replaces advertising. Because in some ways, mm-hmm. uh, there was sort of the social sort of embedded advertising of ambassadors sort of going to parties, people who are popular yep. Yep. Uh, and right. getting paid to use the products. Does this kind of replace that in a way? And you could do it with less time and not having to go to the party and just sort of message a link and call it a day? We really innovated our classic direct sales business model and did away with complex play plans and really built solid technology so that people can add real value by texting personal recommendations and making it shoppable. In addition to doing pop-ups, people still do like to get together in person, but more and more they want to interact online and not be dependent on, you know, posting on Facebook or things like that, but like real personal service. So yes, it is a modern day version of how people can earn, but without having to be a social media influencer, create your own content or ship your own product. So Lisa and I, we see economic data every day. And one of the pieces of economic data is, is this, the unemployment rate is at, you know, Mm -hmm. 60 year low. Does that make it difficult for you to find ambassadors if they're already fully employed? Economics is my background and my point of passion and why I wanted to do this. I so firmly believe that women are still underserved in the gig economy at full employment. Because if you look at what's happening, if you look at millennials, half of them have a gig. But of women, they're 70% primary caregivers. And half of them are doing gigs in childcare and dog sitting, earning wages <laughs> they could have earned before they had all that college debt, which they have much more so than their previous generation. So their wealth is lower. They're not saving for retirement. So a second gig is necessary even at full employment because it's stagnant wages and underemployed. So this strategy has been used by other companies. I'm thinking of Avon in particular. That's right. Uh, right. I mean, in another era before texting. Um, or Herbalife also uh, kind of tried to use a network of places. I see you just sort of be like, don't compare us to Please Herbalife. Please don't. Please don't. <laughs> There's such a big difference. <laughs> but, but what makes a difference between a successful business model and something that basically uh, encourages someone to put some money up front and then yes. go out there and, and make it, you know. So I got that. into this from an e-commerce and technology background, and I never thought... I would do something in what people assume is the direct sales space because I thought of it as a pyramid scheme. But what I realized what drives that, it's really pretty simple. Are you trying to encourage the people to shop and store inventory or are you actually de-risking and not requiring them to buy and simply paying them when you ship direct to customer? If you remove that channel stuffing inventory thing, it has nothing to do with those other types of businesses. Our business is really about having no risk, low cost of capital, and we also make it learn and earn. We do financial education for women with Self-Made University, talk about savings, smart business skills. So we're on the other extreme of wanting to make sure there is uh, protection in there. 
Is there a churn to your 30,000? Uh, Absolutely. Our, our, you know, if you think about it as seasonal work or part-time work, we have teachers that only do it during the summer. We have people that come in to pay for a, a bill and then transition because it's low cost to start, easy to make fast cash, and then they will pick it up and put it down to suit their life needs. So interesting. Yeah, it really is. It's a fascinating model. And, and it's interesting to, in light of just uh, how many people out there are doing second and third jobs. If you could do it on your phone, it would make it a lot easier than yes. to actually go somewhere and well, deal with I, I always wonder when I walk into a Starbucks, I see <laughs> all these right. people sitting on their computers. What are they doing? You well, they're just, if you're just going to scroll Instagram anyway, you might right. as well be making money. <laughs> and you might, might as well be earning something, doing something you love. Jessica Heron, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Jessica Heron is founder and chief executive officer of Stella and Dot, normally based in San Francisco, but joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.